1: Short question and answer session, and after that each poet will read again briefly. And Sarah Brownie will be reading uh, first the short introduction. Uh, Sarah Brownie is the author of Killing Summer and Whiskey in the Garden of Eden. She's co founder and executive director of Sport This Rock and an Associate Fellow of the Institute for Policy Studies. She is a recipient of fellowships from the DC Commission on the Arts and Humanities, the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, and the Adirondack Center for Writing. She has been guest editor or co-edited special issues of halfway Poetry Quarterly, the Delaware Poetry Review, and Poetry Magazine. She has also co-edited DC Poets Against the War, an anthology. Browning co-hosts the Sunday Kind of Love poetry series at Busboys and Poets in Washington, D.C. Tim cycles wrote of Sarah Browning's new book that poetry must be honest and precise, but it must also dare us to see what we are invited not to see and, and what seems easier not to say. Sarah Browning finds ways to speak truth in poetry, addressing both social justice and personal themes that are sometimes not easy to talk about. In her poem in Guantanamo, unlikely small items become essential for a political prisoner and for a poem, and in both cases create surprising works of art. In This Is the Poem, the poet challenges herself about how to write about slave-owning ancestors and racism, not backing down from asking more and more questions, we are grateful to have such a great poet here with us tonight. Please welcome Sarah Browning Thank you
2: Thank you. How wonderful to be here with you tonight on woo everything's flying on uh, such a windy day, and the brave young people who are out in the streets, let's, uh,
3: let's give them a big
2: round of applause. In the last several years the, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Occupy movement, um, all of the, the recent movements have just made me swell with pride that uh, the people are taking our country back from the oligarchs who've taken it away. You know, um, 60 people own half the world's wealth. You know, how do they sleep at night? Really? How do they? Split This Rock, uh, as you as you heard mention, um, I'm the, I have the great privilege of being the co-founder and executive director of the, uh, my daddy is a English, retired English professor, I'm not supposed to end sentences like that, but what, what the fuck? Sometimes we just gotta. Um... It's um, dedicated to poetry that bears witness to injustice and provokes change. Our Cornerstone program is a festival every two years. It's coming up a month from now, April 19th to the 21st. So I got postcards, a bunch I brought up so that you can grab some and spread them all around Baltimore. I hope you will. Um, India, in our front row here, is our social media fellow. Actually, we're we're trying for a... um, non-gender specific term, felix, so she's our, um, yeah, so uh, let's give it up for India. Um, I got some here, and I got some out on the, uh, on the table there, um, and actually, next week is our 10th anniversary week, it's kind of amazing, yeah, and uh, we have a bunch of events in D.C., which is where we're based, next week and also some social media happenings as well. Um, So if you get down to DC or you want to come down to DC, um, we made a slapdash um, flyer about those events, and that's on that table as well. So grab some stuff, um, propaganda, and otherwise, but check us out on splitthisrock.org. We also publish a poem a week, um, creatively called Split This Rock Poem of the Week. And uh, you can sign up for that on the, on the website, um, and you'll get it on Friday morning, a breath of uh, challenging and uh, enriching um, poetry. Friday morning. Uh, we have gathered all of them into an online database called the Quarry. And we'll hit 500 poems in the Quarry this year. It's been incredible. So I'll leave those there. And now, how about some, for some poetry? Um, I'm going to read one incredibly short, but very moving poem by another poet. We just got these 700 copies of Poetry Magazine, the April issue, in the mail yesterday. Um, I had the incredible privilege of co-editing a Split This Rock portfolio of the 13 poets who will be featured at the festival next month. In this issue, and 700 copies came because if you sign up to come to Split the Talk Poetry Festival, as Celeste and Anthony at least will be in the back row there, you'll get a free copy donated by Poetry Magazine. Uh, And the first poem in the portfolio is by Ilya Kaminsky, a Ukrainian poetry novelist in the United States. And look at the poem question what is a man a quiet between two bombardments to read that today as we're fighting gun violence and we're fighting all violence on our streets the streets of Syria and everywhere. Thank you for this water. Where did I put it? <laughs> Thank you. Can't hold anything in my damn hand. This is the book. I keep saying it's brand new, but it was feels new. Books are new for a year, we say. Came out in September. It's called Killing Summer. And this is the titular poem, which is a, uh, a pretentious word for title poem. Killing Summer seems especially appropriate today, but all every day in America. The Washington Post section B, Local Griefs. Another boy dead, and another, across town, down the block, in the alley, in his car, a few feet from a middle school, at a bus shelter, dead at the scene, pronounced dead at the hospital, motive unknown, suspects unknown. City of split heads, city of gun shops threatening, city of playing the dozens across the steaming streets, streets of rain and fast anger, streets of whistling, streets of mourning, mourning, silence of lamppost shrines, Sunday dinners cooking slowly in stew pots, Stewpots of greens and fastback, all manner of potatoes, pork that tumbles begging from the bone. The dead young men lie in the city morgue, keeping company with their dead brothers. It is Saturday, July in DC, killing summer. Shake out the newspaper, shake death from the bus shelter. What city are we? How do we call ourselves, neighbors? I'm very grateful to Shailene, and I didn't um, meet—I didn't meet the lovely woman who introduced me.
1: Kim. Oh, Kim. Kim, hi, thank
2: you for that lovely introduce, introduc- introduction. Thank you. Um, and thank you all so much for coming out tonight. I'm also thrilled to be meeting and reading with Jennifer tonight. Can't wait to hear you. Um, and thank you for um, publishing this poem on the website. This is uh, takes place between Baltimore and Washington, so it seemed appropriate. This is the poem, and this is the, this is the poem that one of the poems that Kim mentioned in her lovely introduction. Um, and since y'all are uh, Marylanders, um, you know who Lucille Clifton is, was um, your poet laureate for many years, although uh, she was originally from, uh, from Buffalo, New York.
1: <clears throat>
2: this is the poem. I am on the parkway with Fred, driving home from Baltimore to D.C. We've been to a packed and riotous tribute to Ms. Lucille Clifton at the Public Library. How we start talking about history and my slave-owning forebears and poetry, I don't remember. But that's how it is with Fred. We talk about these things. I tell Fred I've been trying and failing to find my way into the head of my great-grandmother or anyone else who owned other people, trying to imagine. Fred says, well, maybe that's not the poem. Maybe this is the poem, you and I, a black man and a white woman crossing state lines below the Mason-Dixon line. The traffic stalls for late-night repairs. And we stop between these two cities. We are friends in a car. And how could the black men mutilated and beaten and thrown in rivers for just this? Talking with a white woman crossing state lines Riding in a car. Not come and congregate with Fred and me as we sit quietly a moment. Construction lights flash in our eyes. I wonder about the white women. Where are they in this story? How could they bear what had been done in their names? Was there ever one who said no. I wanted to read the um, the short poem that Kim, the other one Kim mentioned, um, in Guantanamo. I was so struck when I heard this. Sometimes capitalism and public education beats it out of us uh, through standardized testing and other means. But um, under duress, it returns. I'm doing this not because I'm Bill Clinton, but you'll see why. (laughs) In Guantanamo, a man composes a poem pressing his thumbnail into the white permanence of his styrofoam cup. Arabic script of praise song, of lament, circling the cup, cup of our disdain. Hail the cup, singing its squeaky dirge in the land of our offs. Hail the poet's nail, thumb, muscle, and hail his nerve. I think I'll read one more poem for now, and then hand it to Jennifer, and then we can come back. especially in libraries. I like to read about books. Langston Hughes joins the Merchant Marine, 1923. Langston drops all his books, except Leaves of Grass, into New York Harbor, so that the two poets lie down together, in the cramped hold of the ship Wrapped in the hammock of language Song of themselves Spooning in the middle of the ocean Uncle Walt Whispers to Langston Out on the blue Cajoles Welcomes him Stretching vocal cords Straining body Ship then hunger. Langston touches and is touched, ship chain of the other. Skin the question, skin the answer. No land but music. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much for that reading. Sarah, that was really amazing. Um, actually, I mean, I'm going to introduce Jennifer Wallace now. Jennifer Wallace teaches at MICA in Baltimore. She is a poetry editor at the Cortland Review. Her poems, essays, and photographs have appeared in artists' books, exhibition catalogs, galleries, museums, anthologies, and literary journals. Her fifth poetry collection, Almost Entirely, was published by Paraclete Press in 2017. Jennifer Wallace's poems are spiritual exercises, verbal yoga, soul stretching, prepped for an internal marathon. What we practice when we read them is attention which transforms into love. Each morning my head is turned for me toward a crow's flight, squirrel passage or a person with whom I share an ever-present reaching toward," she writes. Her poems turn our heads and hearts in the same way. Their music is gentle, their wisdom measured and sure. It's good medicine to wait for a bird, she writes elsewhere. Tonight she brings us birds and other beauties well worth waiting for. Please help me to welcome Jennifer Wallace.
0: That's really sweet. I shall try to live up to that. (laughs) Thank you all for coming. Thank you for making the long trek. Good to have everybody's words. Mm. So I'm going to read from this new book, newish, November. We have this little time machine. Um, the book gets its title from a poem by my very first poet that I fell in love with who was Hayden Carruth and uh, Hayden Carruth had a a long career including I think an editor of poetry way back when and um, when he was 86 years old he wrote a poem called Testament in which he said uh, now I am almost entirely loved. And I just was slayed by that. I thought, that's what I want to say and feel when I'm 86 years old. Mm-hmm. So um, so the title of the book is Almost Entirely. That comes from his poem. And there's a little dedication poem uh, to Aidan Carruth, uh, which opens the book, and it's called Caruth. You guys can hear me okay? A little bit, a little bit down. down? Okay, how's that better? Yeah. Good. Caruth, Caruth, my first loved poet, said in his testament, now I am almost entirely love. He imagined his ego's heaviness sifting through the hourglasses, narrowness, and settling on a gathering cone of love below. He didn't know it then, but when I lift his book from the shelf, the love he has become spills like galaxies in my hands." So that's the opening opening poem. Um, The the book's in four sections. There there was an interview that someone did, said, well, what are these poems about? And that's always a tough question for a poet to answer. And and I said, well, they're about faith, doubt, and bad behavior. Um, And I think that that holds pretty well true as I try that on um, through several months since the books come out. But I would say most of the poems that deal with faith are in this first section, although they do kind of sprinkle their way through. And uh, the first section is called, When the Wing Gives Way. And this first poem in that section is called, When the Wing Gives Way, and it's in two parts. How to feel his death on the street the shots, my friends scream. One cracked the air, the other pierced the thin veil. A usual evening returning from somewhere returned from many times before. When I look for how to fix the broken city that I love, the whole tower wobbles. What the government hasn't done, what the gunman's parents didn't do what I haven't done with my puny song. And now the sirens. And now the neighbors who say, didn't he resist? And now, how can I live in this place, or in any place? How can I live with myself, a part of his self, lying there, a part of the selves who dropped him there? All of us under a wing that is no wing. In my mind, voice, without knowing why, or for where it came, a whisper, when the wing gives way, when the wing gives way. I want to be more ready than I am today, ready to let what is left lift me and draw me into meanings that will shatter me more than this. Uh, This poem is called Doubt. I look at it this way. Either you exist or you don't. I don't think in your case that there is an in-between sort of God, and the point seems to be not to think about it or to reason about it. But but here's the thing. If I am to believe in what others say and these others being agents of yours— that I was made in your image, and since I am predisposed by nature to question everything, it would seem that you wanted it this way, that you are also this way, that you sewed into me a weak thread that was bound to unravel, that you hoped would unravel, setting me off course with respect to you. Now that's an odd strategy but the same one who invented oxygen invented doubt. And I guess that sort of variety keeps things moving, which you are a fan of, no doubt. Okay, now this is a poem that Shailene was kind enough to to quote, and it's called The Wind of God. And uh, the first line is the line from Genesis. Uh, If you know Genesis, you might recognize the line. Uh, the wind of God moved over the face of the waters. After reading this, the awareness that more than once God has turned my head in the right direction, yet I haven't seen it for what it is. The world charges and is charged with a white hot flame. I might turn away, but each morning my head is turned for me toward a crow's flight or a squirrel's passage or a person for whom I share an ever-reaching toward. I let myself be turned sometimes and sometimes I get into my car and drive away. Today I picture God hand cupped atop my head a quiet turning and then receding. We are fine with each other. This God has all the time in the world. So then, section two uh, turns from these poems of explicit poems about faith to uh, puzzlement about humans and their place and all the strange and wondrous things that human beings are are up to. And it's called, Something for Us to Stand On. And the first poem in this section is called, We Know How It Works. it has a couple of quotes from another favorite quote of mine, George Oppen, and I'll just sort of point up when, when Oppen shows up in the poem. Uh, it also refers to this phenomena of, um, we spend time in Puerto Rico every year, and we learn always that when the Indian Ocean is warm, the winds blow from Africa, and the skies in the Caribbean get sandy, and people have um, asthma. So that phenomena appears in this poem, too. As well as a quote from the um, poet Richard Sicken, which is, we know how it works. The world is no longer mysterious. Could it be, as the poet said, flip the switch, the light goes on. Take the wolves away, the elk eat all the willows. Sure, the world can be explained. Someone swallowed the pills. Someone slept with someone who was not his wife. One person drew a picture of a bridge. A hundred people climbed the girders with their hammers. But when George often writes, knowledge is loneliness, turning and turning. We know what he means, and, and we don't know. How do the cranes find their way home? Where does a song go after it enters your ear? The Indian Ocean warms, sand blows in Africa, and the Caribbean stops breathing. We know it's a matter of one degree, but why don't we stop our burning? The foghorn reminds us that even after the perilous crossing, the self is no mystery, the mystery is that there's something for us to stand on. Who understands? Who stands under? the invisible weight of all of that. We know the number of the gene, but not the day the strand will break. So there are plenty of other puzzling things, including, I went to an exhibit at the Walters Art Museum, maybe some of you did too, in Baltimore, it was a few years ago, on Iranian illuminated manuscripts. Just gorgeous. And there was a, a, Case that had all the piles of brown pigments that they used to make these incredible, beautiful painted books. And one pile was the, the most intense yellow. It was like yellow. <laughs> and underneath, in the little card about how these colors were made, it said Indian yellow, made from urine of cows fed on mango leaves. (laughs) (laughs) And I went, really? (laughs) It's one of these puzzling things, like, how did they figure that out? (laughs) So this poem tries to figure that out. And it's called, Urine of Cows Fed on Mango Leaves. (laughs) Imagine the discovery, food being scarce, a herder gathered the shiny leaves that had fallen from the single courtyard tree and threw them down among the hooves. The beasts were glad for it, something other than scraping for the few tufts left in the dust where they were staked. And they gorged and chewed and chewed and grunted throughout the night. The next day, the herder, or maybe his children, passing time among the flies, stepped back from the first rump, arched itself, letting loose its stream, and the second and the third great pools of sunshine raised the, s- the sand and muck. Someone used a stick to stir the stuff, someone else scooped it up and spread it on the leather strap, just to fool with it, just to see what it would become. When the minister of painted books came to collect his milk, he pitched A bit between his finger and his thumb, he gasped, as if the clouded heavens opened for the lighted one. The herder and his children became famous in the town. Priests and artists came from miles around. They planted two more trees and purchased three more cows." (laughs) (laughs) So that's really how it happened. Okay, so there is some bad behavior in here. Um, this poem is called, I Don't Like People, Animals Too, Are (laughs) An (laughs) imposition. My neighbor is mean as a chainsaw. Last week he routed the runoff from his yard to mine. He doesn't give a damn about his dog, who craps in everyone's garden but his own. I've tried a friendly nod, even Christmas pie. I lie in bed at night and wonder if he was damaged as a child. His lover must have run off for another guy. Probably his spleen's enlarged. I want to treat him as I would myself, but this morning I lit a paper bag of shit on fire and ran after knocking on his door. (laughs) Go ahead, I am no better than him. I failed to rise above it as my father always said, There's a lesson in here somewhere. If you can find it, keep it to yourself. I've got chores to do.
3: Chop wood and
0: fix the wall in my yard. Uh, We had an uprising here in Baltimore a few years ago. And um, some newscasts said it was a state of emergency and someone else who lived in one of the neighborhoods that was burning said, it's always a state of emergency. And that line really struck me. Um, This poem is called State of Emergency. Freddie Gray laid to rest and the city erupts under orange haze and chopper blades. Twitter circulates one young man astride his bike, gas mask on his face, fist Raised against the armored cops. Churches burn, glass strewn, vacant homes line the streets just as they have before. Behind a couch, a crib, upon a bed, at the table, on the bus, on the bike, on the train, somewhere love hunkers down. And I guess one more from this section, which was poem from New York. So you all know that song by Benny King called Stand By Me. I wish I could sing it, but I'm really bad at singing. But uh, anyway, the poem is called Stand By Me, and the last line is um, a line from that song. On um, the number one local heading uptown on August 9th. I'm shoulder to toe with New York's weary workers. At the far end, a baritone in a linen shirt sings then E. King. The clunky train hollows with his deep song and then, give me a little help, New York, he invites us all to join in. I want to sing, and others do too. The woman who bobs and swings, she almost sings the one who slides over so I can sit, and the one who complains with her eyes about being too close to me. No one sings. Tough crowd tonight, he laments at 72nd Street. And when he steps out, I feel regret. I need him more than I thought. When the night has come, and the land is dark, when mountains fall into the sea. So um, maybe I'll just read two from the last section, and then we can have our break, and, and we have a few more. Um, so the last section is called "Like Light, Light Through the Branches," and I live in two places. Well, probably live in hundred thousand places, but physically I live in Baltimore, but we also live in Western Massachusetts, and I noticed you had some Massachusetts poems in your in your book. So a lot of these poems are. Uh, are from and, and in those two places. And I thought I would try this one, because I haven't really read this before. Oh, we were walking on, a, on an old lumber road, an old wood road up there. And we had an amazing experience. So it's called Axis Mundi. In the Hemlock Forest, on an old lumberman's road, the end of light, last leaves falling, the trees, their skeletal shapes, and on the road a creature too far to fully see. And so we stopped, and, and all the sounds stopped, but the animal kept walking. And so we made on that long road a kind of access, the creature and the people and in the vibration between those poles, all that we are and all that we are not. On either side of the road, the uncultivated forest and all its wild distance. And then a crow, flying low, issuing its warning. And the bobcat, which had by this time come close to us, saw the danger there and was gone. Okay, I'm just going to read this because it's fun to read. We have spent time, we love water, we go to wherever we can find water, and we have spent time um, in the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, this poem recalls one of those experiences, and it's called Hammerhead. Sun-drenched, the benevolent gulf lies flat and aquamarine, our rented boat chugs offshore from Three Rooker Key and the pelicans, looking Jurassic, dive for a mullet, the shrimp buckets slip sloshes under our feet. A great day to fish, except I don't like the thought of catching them, but you do, and I like watching you bait the hook and cast the rod and the hard power of your curse when things don't work. The clever fish eat the shrimp right off the hook. We're feeding them, I say. That's not helpful, you say back. (laughs) And the timing couldn't be better because just then your rod tip dips way down. And you play it a little to be sure it's caught. The line pulls taut, producing this promising arc of the bent-over rod. Something flashes in the water, zigzags toward the boat. Hammerhead! an infant two feet long, and the hook sunk clear through its lip, the wild thing on our boat bottom choking in the paradoxical light. It was my job, you said, to get the hook out, the hook that pierced clear through its toothy lip, the hook with a ring of red now growing on its alabaster skin, and I was glad to have a task, and like a pro pressed my foot against its spine, Behind the signature fin, the young shark's life pinned under my shoes' rubber tread, and the damn cutter's rusted dull wouldn't clip the hook. And the air grew fast with dying. I said the only way to pull the is to pull the hook out backwards, and it was easy, and it slid through the lip with a soft pop. I slid it to the water quick, releasing its elegant tail from my fleshy hand. It swam straight down, leaving us alone with the crests of the glittery waves. Do you want to
3: come up? Um. Thank you so much, uh, Jennifer. That was wonderful. So now we have time for a little QA, so if our poets could sit at the front table here. Um I think I need to turn turn these on. Yes. Yeah. Cool. So these are handheld <laughs> mics.
2: Ah
0: fancy. I I can I yeah. 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 So. Yes. Very fancy. Um
3: so if you have a question, I'm going to pass you the mic
1: because we're recording um, just voices for, for the website. Thank you very
3: much. Very good presentation. Three weeks from today, it will be the 50th anniversary assassination of Dr. King, a very solemn day. One question to you both is, where are we on the 50-year spectrum from the time Dr. King left us? How much have we compass, and how
0: far do we need to go in the Black Lives Matter movement and other movements, including the student movement against arms? Thank you.
2: The move, the movement against.
3: The student movement against arms. Against, against arms.
0: Yeah. I only have a one. I have a one-word answer. It's Hayden Carruth's answer too, and also. Martin Luther King Jr.'s answer, which is love. Just keep it up.
2: Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. we've made progress, right? And we have a long ass way to go. A long way to go, right? We, have ra- we still have radical inequality in our country. Race-based inequality. At the um, wealth gap is enormous based on race in this country. Black people and people of color are subjected to incredible violence in this country still and uh, it has become I think more clear to some white people that is progress and we have activists to thank for that. Is this work? Does this work? Woo! Um, and finally having some conversations that got suppressed for some time. So that's progress. Um, but um, when I say, for example, that I'm descended from slave owners... Some white people gasp just to admit it. As a white person in this country, is still unusual, unexpected. You know, um, who's that pretty boy who wanted to have it suppressed? On, um, you remember? You know, the guy from Goodwill Hunting.
1: Matt Damon. Mm-hmm. Matt. No, the other one. Ben Affleck. Affleck. Matt
2: Damon's the good one, right? (laughs) Ben Affleck's the pretty boy, right? Um, Yeah, he actually wanted to have it suppressed that he had slave-owning forebears. Come on, somebody has to have, right? Because a huge number of, of white folks did, do have that in our background. I mean, it's like the French after the... Second World War. Oh yeah, we were all in the resistance. (laughs) Um, So we have to come to terms with our history, or we will never uh, work, be able to dismantle the structures that enforce this. You know, the racist uh, racism and racist race based inequality. Um, And if we don't tell the truth about our history, then it's easy to enforce the myths that undergird this inequality. Um, I can trace very directly how I went to Harvard. Very directly from my slave-owning great-grandparents. And, you know, we're not not talking huge amounts of money, but you'll leg up financially. Um, and that that the you know the black folks who worked for my great great grandparents didn't have, uh, and probably still don't have the kind of comfort, not, as I said, not huge amounts of money, but the kind of comfort and ease through life that my family has had.
1: Um,
2: so we have a long long ass way to go. Sorry, that was, you, your
0: love. <laughs> love, it. it's so simple. And um, we also, with regards to history, I think we have to teach our kindergarteners and earlier, we have to start really early. Absolutely. And um, I think that's key to making young people understand what their background is, right? Absolutely. But my question is for Jennifer,
3: actually, and I was noticing that you, um, you quote a lot in your poetry, at least in the recent poetry that I've heard from you. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit
0: about that. Songs and you have poets that you quote, so what's, what, what are you doing? Yeah, um, now let's see. You had that pointed really is Does this work for you? No. Like that. Does this work better? How? Something better. There, that's okay. good. There's like a sweet spot here somehow. <laughs> is that it? Yes. Okay, that's it. Uh, you're right, I do do that. And... I think that, well, the short answer is that I feel like I'm in communication with all of the voices. Mm. You know, and once at the Maryland Institute, they wanted me to be on some committee about intellectual property. And I said, I would just be like an awful person because I don't feel like we own the stuff in the first place. I mean, I think that I feel like I'm here and things are blowing through me and I'm a witness to, to a lot. So um, I try to give all the um, voices that speak to me um, credit in the books and in the poems and make sure that their voices are identified. But I feel like it's like sometimes we're in a duet or, or that there are multiple, um, multiple members of the choir. And I used to try to rule that out and have that be just kind of like footnotes. But then I realized, no, that they were really a part of the tissue of the poems and that we were um, with each other. So I started to let them be. Mm -hmm. That's where that comes from. Mm.
2: I have a lot of my friends who are Mm. poets in my poems. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, Who are some of the poets each of you has enjoyed reading recently?
2: You take that one first. I'm organizing a poetry festival right now. (laughs) (laughs) So I've been reading the poets who will be featured at Split This Rock Poetry Festival. Cozumali. Elizabeth Acevedo, she's got this brand new young adult novel all in verse. It's called The Poet X. It's unbelievable. I highly recommend it. Um, so, yeah, check them out, mm-hmm. um, and actually, uh, we are featuring their poems in Poem of the Week, so as they send us little batches of poems, I get to read five new, you know three to five new poems to consider one for Poem of the Week, and Paul Tran, who is a gender non conforming uh, Vietnamese immigrant poet, actually he 's the son of immigrants, and what we 're seeing are these um, both Paul Tran and Javier Zamora who are two young poets that He's not were mine I was going to say Javier yeah. Zamora is Z- that we're <laughs> featuring our Z- yeah. both so Paul is you know uh, Vietnamese and Javier is Salvadoran so we're starting to see these second the you know first generation of US exported wars mm-hmm. the next generation writing and the the kind of second-generation, you know, impact of the war, just as we did Vietnam, right? I'm sorry, the Vietnam vets. Now we're seeing the children, both U.S. Vietnam vet children and Vietnam veteran uh, children. Oh, my God. Unbelievable work. Um, highly recommend. So, go, you know, if you go in on our website and check out Paul Tran's poem from last two weeks ago, sucker punch work.
0: And well, Javier Zamora, I've been reading his book, I've been reading Sarah Browning's book. Ooh, thank you. <laughs> and um, also, Jack Gilbert. Oh. Jack Gilbert is a, po- is a poet who um, I was struck by a long time ago when he wrote a poem about. Throwing a child up in the air, and every time he threw the child, he said Pittsburgh, so that so that the child would always remember when the child felt pleasure, the ruined city of steel. <laughs> and uh, and so then a collected version of Jack Gilbert's poems just came out. He died um, recently, and I've been enjoying his work so much revisiting that. So. I would recommend both of those. I, have, I, have, I know you do have a Jack Gilbert. Go an ahead. epigraph.
2: <laughs> to make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. Jack Gilbert. I questions? <laughs> Up here.
1: Jennifer, did you literally... Um, I know what you're going to ask. Yeah. Did you? <laughs> oh, don't make me ask. Ask it,
2: uh, Ask the, the question yeah. for the recording. Oh, did yeah. you
3: literally put a flaming bag of crap on your oh, grouchy neighbor's portion? I literally
0: did that in my imagination. <laughs> <laughs> good. <laughs> well, maybe. Um, maybe well,
2: I have one question for her. Sarah, oh, yeah, though. So it's my Sarah question.
0: Yeah, Sarah? There are many poems in your book in which you refer to dreams. Really? Yes. Really? Fifty-seven, sixty-five, 57, 65, and 77. And and that's, I'm just starting.
2: I was not aware. (laughs) I was not aware of that. So
0: so I was wondering if you could talk to us about the role of dreams in your work. They're unconscious. Wow. Wow. Well, Well, I I do know know
2: there's the... There's the one about that guy I was obsessed with in high school. Wait a minute. You gotta
0: tell me what the other okay. pages. Well so there was one called um, More and More on page fifty seven. Oh yeah. In the Dream He Was Light. Yeah. On page sixty five, yeah. Blueberry Seasons. Page
2: seventy seven. <laughs> that one's not a dream. Oh, I dream about. Oh, yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's, that's, a, different that's, a, that's right, a different. That's a daydream, right? That's a daydream. Yeah. Um, well, those are the the other two are sex dreams. <laughs> yeah. We could we could leave it there, or we could talk about the power of the erotic, um, because uh, yeah. So I was raised with a lot of shame because my grandmother, who was English, lived with us a lot. She was a single mom, which wasn't very common for English upper-middle-class women. But she brought my mother to this country um, as as war refugees, and then after the war decided to divorce my grandfather instead. And so uh, my mother felt obliged to have her live with us a lot. I don't know. Anyway, what I realized was She was born in 1905, which means that she was raised by Victorians, essentially, which is kind of like dragging the 19th century along. Um, And she used to say all kinds of horrible things to us. I had sisters. Um, You know, like, um, you know, behave like a young lady, dear, and don't put yourself on display. Uh, Yeah, so, um, so, Right, the the erotic had to come up somehow, I guess, and it came up in my dream life. That's really interesting. I hadn't kind of realized that. Yeah, into the poems, mm-hmm. right? So, um, uh, I wrote. I was just at the big this big writers conference called AWP. Some writers in the audience will know about it. That um, uh, takes place every year, and this year it was in Tampa. And I was on a I was on a panel of middle aged women writing erotic poems. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, um, every, all the other women were like oh yeah I've been writing these poems forever Woo-hoo. and I was like I only started publishing them when I was 40 because I was so ashamed I had so much shame that um, that I wrote them I was That's writing them but I didn't publish them until yeah. you know <laughs> scary uh, until um, middle age and then Woo! now I'm like a wild middle-aged woman, wanton as my wanton woman, brazen hussy as my um, my you know, my Nana would say, but she would say with a very prim voice. Yes, although she did have this fabulous expression that we would always giggle when she would say on a picnic about the men. Hmm, that's a handy thing to take to a picnic. <laughs> Thank you for that question.
0: Yeah, that's the, um... Oh, one more question. Um. I'll be super brief, oh, sorry. Uh, Jennifer, I really enjoyed your poems. I had a question, the last poem that you read uh, about, about the fish. I was going to ask if, in the backdrop, you were thinking about Elizabeth Bishop's fish poem. Well, I hadn't been. I was going to say, and you know, everyone's got their fish poem. But okay, wait before before. So oh, that yes, was the I'm first sorry, part I'm of sorry. the question. Yeah. Um, because that was playing in my mind as you were as you were reading. It. And then the second part of the question is, if you did have that poem in the back of your mind, then how did you feel about writing a poem where other people think about that and we, you know, brings up the idea of another poem in their mind. So you're sort of playing with the idea of the past and the future, and how did you feel about representing that in your work and where you were framed? Um, So good question. And no, I didn't think, I mean, I, I know Elizabeth Bishop's poem, and I thought when I was revising it, wow, this is, Fish poem. Just Elizabeth Bishop has her fish poem, and I have now. I have mine, and you know everybody can have a fish poem. You know, I kind of that's how I feel. It's the same. It's, it's the same as these other voices. You know, I don't really feel the same kind of uh, boundaries around those things. I feel like the words are in the world and they're available to all of us as our fish. And my experience was similar to hers. And I didn't feel afraid about it, really. Um, You know, I had a friend in graduate school who wrote a poem about a dragonfly. And our teacher, who's like a very heavyweight poet, you know, made it feel like she shouldn't be writing poems with dragonflies, that that was too precious, too um, referencing the Romantic era, and... You know, she felt like she had to like can her dragonfly poem, and I said, "When are we gonna? Le- we gonna legislate against dragonflies?" <laughs> you know, and so I wrote this found poem that was every line from every romantic poet that I could find. You know, men, women. You know, they were all in there, and it was over the top, and it was in defense of dragonflies. So, I, you know, I had the same kind of thing about the fish. I think we we all own all of it, or none of it. <laughs>
2: That's like um, Liz Acevedo in grad school was told that um, the was it, the people were in her workshop that was told to write they were told to write an ode to a an animal, and she's like I'm from the Bronx, so she wrote <laughs> she wrote something to the rat, and the professor was like the rat is not a noble enough creature for an ode. She was like fuck you, and she wrote <laughs> Rat Ode, and it's this brilliant fucking poem. You can go on YouTube and see her, her perform it. It's an unbelievably brilliant poem, and now she tells that story like any, po- and I say, I've i always said this, any topic is a legitimate topic for a poem. It's just how you write the poem, right? So write the fish poem, write the dragon poem, write the poop poem. <laughs> I mean, uh, John Updike wrote uh, poem to its, you know, called "Beautiful Bowel Movement." It's a sonnet, and it was my beautiful, my beautiful bowel movement, and it was in the New Yorker. This was like in the '90s, you know, when political poetry was out of favor. You know, I'm like, "Fuck you!" Really, the world is falling down like it always is. And John Updike gets a poem called My Beautiful Bowel Movement in the New York. <laughs> we,
0: we can do better than that. We can do better than that. Well, um I'm sorry. I, I know you're gonna have
2: you're gonna have to decide whether to put that on your website. That was great. this
3: is yeah, this has been a terrific. On that note, <laughs> i love this to go on longer, but um, we should probably, since we, started, since we started a little, we should probably move to um, closing poems, and then there'll be a little time afterwards if people want to chat more. Buy books. Mm. And also purchase books. Um, so if each of you would like to read, read one,
2: one more poem. Um, sure. Does
3: this, does this make easier to handle? This would make Why easier Why don't we do this one instead? Okay. 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 Well, um, can I read two very short ones? Yeah, oh, yeah, please. Yeah. Um,
2: because uh, I would love to read, now that we've talked about rats <laughs> um, and Western Mass, mm-hmm. I'd like to read a, close with the Western, well, or I could do a rousing political poem.
1: Western Mass
2: and Rat and City Rat poem. Yeah. Right. And they're facing each other in the book, which is kind of cool. Yeah, which I hadn't quite planned, but maybe I did. Um, so I lived in Western Mass for nine years, but I didn't quite take to it, even though it was beautiful. Because I'm a city girl. I grew up in the south side of Chicago, which explains a lot about me. Farm Country, Western Mass. But where do
0: you live? Shootsbury. You're in Amherst.
2: No, uh, Montague. Oh, yeah, no Montague. October and sloppy ruts threaten the delicate underbelly of your car. You want to slough off steel and walk away. Let stone walls, faded tobacco barns, choking farm tractors take you. be forgiven by chipmunks. You want this myth of field mice, cider sweet air, legend of pumpkins, cows pretending to be serene. You want to learn from their slow cud how to stand in one corner of one pasture and chew. (laughs) And this one's called Kin. The peonies are perfect freaks. White heads too ponderous for their slender bodies. They bow almost to the ground where, suddenly, a large rat. The city announcing itself. This week I tried to tame my own wild reaching and failed. I've no talent for restraint. How can I teach it to the honeysuckle, English ivy, riotous ground cover hydrangea that threatens the tea rose with its excess? Sister Rat, tell me, what comes next? Will we capture you, poison you, starve you and all your cousins? Here in my yard, with the praying peonies, the rose run raggedy, grasses gone to seed. Thank you.
0: So, oh wait, I don't have a rat, but I do have, I do have a uh, a wild creature that lives in the woods back there in western Massachusetts so this is kind of a long poem I've never read it out loud to an audience before so this will be a first and I'll just read one because it is kind of long and it's called um, How to Paint a Walking Mountain The puzzle about wisdom is that it makes me dumb Hmm. I can't figure out what the zen masters mean the blue mountains are constantly walking or Donovan, remember him, first there is a mountain, then no mountain, then there is? <laughs> Try telling that to your boss on a Tuesday.
1: <laughs> I can sit
0: all day waiting for that mountain across the lake to begin walking. It's not quite a mountain, though. Some call it a knob, others a rise, but from where I sit, Morse Hill is the horizon's highest point and is mountain-like enough. If I were a painter, I'd use some blue, though mostly gray or hunter's green. Rilke on Cezanne would confirm that I'd need all three to get the color of that mountain today. In any case, I can sit waiting for that hill to start walking. I've checked on it while I'm chopping wood, and except for its reflection swirling on the lake's surface, I can tell you That chunk of hemlock, oak, and granite is going nowhere, has planted itself in place where the lake becomes a river on the other side of the dam. I can plop myself in my chair with a notebook and a box full of colors. I can try to describe that place, and soon enough it becomes a friend, up close, in bed, or across the table. The place has more folds and canyons than can ever be seen or even imagined. Hawks in the pines, red fox darting into the ravines and centipedes under the rotted log. A purple hat hangs on a limb where the creek pools up enough for a body to bend down to have a drink. And that's the thing about mountains and about looking. There's always more. If we were to walk up the Shootsbury Road and over the old stone dam, we'd pass a divot in the road. One of us would trip on the bumpy surface, and in falling, we'd spot a moss trail covered by the laurels. We'd see that it leads to an old graveyard, lush with blueberries for the taking. And though there's some disrespect in that, we'd probably eat a few, which is like eating the mountain, at least the blue part. I need practice in unflattening what my eye sees. The neighbors say a fisher cat lives back in those woods. And while we are supposed to love all wild things, the books say they will, like any good demon, bite you in the face. So there's no way in hell I'm going to verify what goes on over there at night. And That's true about Fisher Cats. Very nasty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, if you needed to, to turn the fish. I saw one once. Okay, so I just wanted to thank um, Jennifer
3: and Sarah for a fabulous evening. You were both fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, stop at the table in the hallway to purchase their books as you leave.
0: Take postcards, and put them out in so, Baltimore. <laughs> oh yeah, I have some postcards about a project I'm working on, so take one of those too.
3: Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, and that's all on the t- uh, table, or I think, yes, on your way out. Um, also, if you take a minute to fill out an evaluation about tonight's program um, for the library that helps us with future plan- program planning, and those are on the closer table here. Uh, we also have an email list where you can sign up and we'll let you know about poetry events at the Pratt because um, we'd love to have you come back for other events. And thank you all for coming tonight. Thank you for poetry.